Well, the air has been thick lately, hasn't it? It's been a little tough to breathe. Now, I'm actually referring to several things. You could be talking about George Floyd or Daniel Prude, who literally couldn't breathe while in police custody. It was challenging to breathe. Or we're talking about the fact that we have to wear masks when we go grocery shopping or anywhere. And after a period of time, it gets a little hard to breathe. Or we finally can see blue sky, but there's still this ugliness on the horizon. We've been breathing smoke for days on... I can't remember how long in my life. I don't think I've seen this much smoke before. It's been hard to breathe. And then we have the tension, the political tension in our society And it's hard to breathe through the deceits and the lies and who's telling the truth and the name calling and the conspiracies and the plots. And my goodness, the air is thick right now in every conceivable way. And it's hard to breathe. And in our Psalms, David is in a similar situation where the air around him is thick and he wants to breathe a little bit. He's feeling suffocated. He's feeling closed in. The question, as we look to this, is where do we run when we feel closed in? When we can't breathe, when the air is thick, where do we go? Where do we run? So let's read the chapters, two separate prayers, and then we will um, dive into them. So Psalm 11, again, we're still David. It says, to the choir master of David. By the way, before we go further anymore, I just want to make sure, can people in the back hear, are, are we loud enough? Perfect. Okay. Uh, to the choir master of David. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Chapter 12. To the choir master, according to this tune, the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the fruitful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver 
refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Who or what do we run toward when the air gets thick, when we feel suffocated? David here is feeling in danger. Apparently, people in his court have come to him in chapter 11, verse 2, and told him, hey, flee to the mountains. Flee like a bird to the mountains. Find safety because the evil are fitting their arrow to the bow. They're ready to shoot in the dark. It sounds like there's a coup in place or a conspiracy or an assassination. David, you're in danger. Get out of here. So he feels surrounded. He feels overwhelmed. And then he prays in verses 4 to the end of the chapter. In chapter 12, he's surrounded by the... the, the uh, that everyone utters lies to his neighbor and speak with a double heart. The godly are gone, the fruitful, the faithful, excuse me, have perished. He feels suffocated by this vileness around him. And so he prays and turns to the Lord. Where are we going? What are we going toward? What are we looking for hope, for deliverance, when we feel that the air is thick and we're suffocating and around us there's danger. We're overwhelmed with the lies or, or the conspiracies or the dangers upon us. Where do we go? There's a temptation to want to escape from all of this, isn't there? Take us now, Lord Jesus. Let us get out of here. Or we find other modes of escape mentally, emotionally. Uh, we find alternate realities, perhaps, that help us escape or find a better outlook on this. But David refuses to flee. He refuses to run. He says in verse 1, in the Lord, this is chapter 11, verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. I've already found my refuge in the Lord. So how can you say to my soul, flay, get out of here because there's danger. How can you say that to me? I have found refuge. David can say he found refuge and he doesn't have to run somewhere. He's found refuge in God because we saw David has been on the run through much of the Psalms up to this point already. Remember Psalm 3? The Psalms... The Psalms kick off right where life meets us, on the run, in the midst of, oh my goodness, what's happening? The Psalms cry out, God, I can't believe this is going on. My own son kicked me off the throne. I've lost my crown. I have no control. I have no security. I don't even know what my identity is anymore. Who am I? On the run, in the middle of a story, the Psalms begin. And so in Genesis, uh, no, not Genesis, Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, we see David's prayers while he is frantically on the fly, on the run, trying to escape all the danger around him. And finally, Psalm 8, it calms down. In Psalm 8, he looks up to the heavens. He says, wow, when I look at the skies and the work of your fingers, I think, Lord, who am I? Who am I that you be mindful of me? What is the son of man that you should visit him? He goes from overwhelmed to wonderwhelmed. David has stopped living a life of running because he's found in God's majesty by looking upward. He can handle whatever's coming forward at him. By being wonderwhelmed, he doesn't have to be underwhelmed or overwhelmed anymore. So David says, I have found refuge 
in the Lord. But if we haven't learned to deal with our overwhelming life by being wonderwhelmed by God, then we will be on the run and we will be running frantically to find answers or any other refuge other than what is here and available for us in the scriptures and in prayer. It's here. This is where our refuge is. And this is what Psalm 11 teaches us. So if we are not wonderwhelmed with the majesty of God, if we're not people praising him and thanking him and offering gratitude to him and looking at what he's done in our life, we will end up fleeing to the mountains. Nothing as people that live in the mountains, obviously. <laughs> Metaphorically, fleeing to your refuge, your safe house, your king's hideout. We won't be tempted if we learn to marvel at the majesty of God. So here's, here's how these two prayers work. They're offering us clarity. When we desperately need clarity, when the air is thick with confusion and conspiracy and evil all around us and what is going on, these psalms offer us clarity. So in chapter 11, David could obviously be um, just completely caught up in this, who in my court is threatening to kill me? Who is this? And he can get all overwhelmed with this. He can reorient his whole life into finding vengeance upon this person. But instead... We see that he looks, so in um, verses 1, 2, and 3, we have the conspiracy against his life, or his concern for his life, right? People are concerned. So let's look at it again. In the Lord I take refuge, how can you say to my soul? Now this is what his counselors are saying. Verse, um, from flee like a bird to the end of verse 3, this is the counselor's advice. David, you should flee like a bird to your mountain. So the king probably has a hideout, right? A secret hideaway. Get there quick, David. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted the arrow. (laughs) The rifle is loaded. (laughs) They have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark. See? It's a secret mission to take down the king. To shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And then there's this last devastating line in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David is hopeless. The foundations are crumbling. What can you do? Get out of here. It's your only hope. Now, I love, you guys know by now, I quote the message every now and then, because I love how colorfully it will sometimes translate a verse, just as a commentary, right? The message says for verse three, the bottoms dropped out of the country. And I said, what? How relevant is that? Can we not see ourselves in verse three now? The bottom is dropped out of the country. We, we have no bottom anymore. And that's part of the problem right now is we don't even know if we can trust democracy at this point. There's a lot of question of is, is November even going to count? And there's a lot of fear being sown about votes are going to get snatched and stolen or they're not going to get counted on time. And, and people are going to say it was an invalid election. Suddenly like, Our our foundational democracy is now seemingly to bottom out. What is going on? Societies are crumbling. And life as we know it no longer has a bottom. And so we can feel here, wow, there's concern. But verse 4 through 7 is where David 
sees properly because rather than focusing on the conspiracy and the concern around him, he is focusing on the clarity and confidence he has in God. So verse four, his prayer begins beautifully. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He's in charge. David's not in charge. Whoever we elect in office of this country is not in charge. Big wise speaking. Our governor, our counties, they're not ultimately in charge. And when they lose control, and when we lose control, and there's lots of concern, we don't need confidence in them. We need confidence in the fact that it says the Lord's throne is in heaven. Nothing's happened up there as far as we know. I don't think there is a pandemic in heaven. I don't think there's pandemonium. I don't think the angels have divided over policies left and right about what God should do with the world. If if that is the case, you can't say heaven help us anymore because it's just like us. His eyes see from his position. He sees everything that's going on. And his eyelids test the children of man. And he understands, look, yep, pandemonium's happening. That's okay. I'm in control. And you know what I'm doing? I'm seeing who, it's a test. He's testing every event that seemingly takes us out of control, that distresses us, is a test for us, for him, to see where is our refuge? Where is the mountain that we flee to? Is it in some confidence, some secret bunker that we've built over here? Is it in our finances? Is it in our social standing? Or is it in the Lord? God's got everything in control, and we need to know this today. The West is burning. The East is underwater with hurricanes. And everyone's moving to the middle of the country. <laughs> And yet we understand that God's on the throne. And Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, the church, when they get their first wave of persecution, prays, Lord, you're in control. And even when Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired to crucify the Son of God, that was part of your plan. You want to talk about a moment of loss of faith, of loss of confidence, is when you're following who you think is the Messiah and suddenly the government crucifies him? Now what? But then they learned through the resurrection. God's mysterious way, he has a he had a plan through that. He's on the throne, he's in charge. So the conspiracy and the concern in David's court now moves to confidence in God's court. There's clarity and confidence. So then, of course, you're getting used to this now in the Psalms. It's like, God, you deal with it. And so you ask them to rain down punishment upon the bad guys. I'm not going to worry about this. You just you just hit them good. Um, so the righteous, the Lord loves the righteous. This is verse um, 7. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You see David there just reminding himself, look, in these times, I want to seek his face. That's where I need to be. I need to be seeking God's face. He's on his throne in heaven. We're good. 
Now, in verse 12, so we get clarity in the midst of conspiracy in chapter 11. Um, chapter 12 gives us clarity in the midst of duplicity. So, clarity in the midst of conspiracy, David finds it, God's in charge. Clarity in the midst of duplicity, duplicity, um, you kind of know what that means in your head. Like, someone in the back of your head, like, I don't, I think I know what that means. It's, it's basically like someone who speaks out of two sides of their mouth. You say one thing, but you mean another. That's duplicity. It's deceit. It just sounds good with conspiracy, so we say duplicity instead of deceit. And then I look smart, so credit. Um, <laughs> we find confidence in duplicity, and you can see that and from the beginning of Psalm chapter 12, it begins in verse 1 and 2 with, again, the situation. Chapter 11 was conspiracy and concern. Chapter 12 is deception and lies. Save me, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. Do you ever feel like that? Almost like you come to church and see the godly ones, but there's no one else out there <laughs> except for the churches. Like there's no one else out there. Do you ever feel like that? The godly one is gone for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. That's duplicity. A double heart they speak. So lies are going around. No one's trustworthy. Lies are going around. They flat, oh, you're so wonderful. But they're actually, there's two things going on in their heart. With a double heart, they speak. The, the Hebrew is really interesting because it's talking about the heart, the place of your intent, the place of your desire, what you aim to do, and then your lip is what you actually say. So the double, uh, uh, where am I? A, a double heart, they speak. So the heart has conflicting desires and they're speaking out of this two different modes of wanting and desiring. So the desire is one thing, but what comes out is the other thing. It's interesting. Have you ever heard of cognitive dissonance? It's when in your mind you have two different ideas, beliefs, values that don't actually go together. They clash. It's like when Richard plays without a capo, but everybody's ready to play with the second capo. It's like that. It's Everyone's on a different tune and it, there's dissonance. It doesn't sound right. That goes on in our heads sometimes. Well, verse two, they speak with a double heart. That's not cognitive dissonance. I'm making this up. So coined it September, whatever it is, 13th. Brandon coined it. <laughs> Cardio dissonance. Cardio dissonance. Their desires are conflicted. It's not just what they think about the world. It's what they want in life and from the world. There's a conflict here. And this is creating a lot of deception, a lot of duplicity. And we can understand that. Wasn't somebody just praying at worship about... Oh, that was the, uh, that was our prayer before the service. Someone's taught praying about, um, wanting our desires to align with God's desires. Something like that. Was it you, right, Sandy? Okay. Well, giving credit where it doesn't belong, I guess. Uh, so there's the deception and lies all around him. It doesn't take, doesn't take a, even if you've been living under a rock, I think you understand how this scenario is relatable. Um, you don't even know what news source to trust anymore. Because apparently, all anyone who's slightly left in the news world, which is um, like most of the cable stuff, I guess, except Fox. I don't know. Whatever. Let's just not. It's called fake news by the right. And then the left always wants to fact check the right and say, well, they're lying. So you got fake news and you got, well, we fact checked and they're wrong. And there's this war between them, so much so that many of us have just thrown our hands up and said, I get my news from 
Joe Schmo on YouTube. He's got it. He's got the secret insights. And we're going to these like street level journalistic news sources because we trust these nobodies more than the establishments. That's that's where we are. I don't know that that's good. Because what's also happening is establishments like churches are no longer trusted. If we, the, In other words, like we saw in chapter 11, verse 3, if the bottom's dropping out, if the center, if, if established institutions no longer hold, what do you have left? If there's no core for society to gather around as this is a reliable source, or this is who God is, or the family unit is what helps us socially, if there's no center institution, then we all are in the wild west choosing what we want to be true, saying what things should be, and we're literally all just kind of in our own ideological realms, and we've adopted the very thing that we say it doesn't exist, relative truth. Truth is, everyone's making their own center now because there is no center. It's a dangerous place when we're surrounded by lies and duplicity. And yet here we are. And a mature Christian who sees truth, who believes in God, will never feel like they have to always choose one side or the other. Because God is the center of reality. And mature Christians... Don't get offended. Their egos aren't hurt when people say your political view is poo-poo. I'm making it childish because we can get childish about it. Like, okay, cool. But see, God's pulling me in the center. I might lean right. I might lean left. But God is in the center. And I have a place. And David's concerned about what he's seeing around him. And so the cardio dissonance is all around. And then verse three, he prays because you can tell he's a little upset. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. It's very graphic, right? Not just mute them, just, just slice it off. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail. That word prevail. And also a Hebrew scholar pointed this out for me. That word prevail is basically it's weaponizing speech. With our words, we will prevail. Or with our tongue, we will prevail. We're using our words as weapons, as offensive force. Uh, one more time to quote the message, because I thought this was really clever. Uh, it looks at this and says, we can talk anyone into doing anything. That's weaponized speech. We can talk anyone into doing anything. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Here we have the exact opposite of what the Psalms are teaching us to do, to enter into the language of prayer and praise. The Psalms are teaching God's people to be pillars of the true Edenic language of prayer and praise in a world of duplicity, lies, and deceit, in a world of boasting of those who say we can use our words to get our way, we're going to weaponize our speech to divide people and be divisive, the Psalms are calling us in a totally different direction. God's people don't speak this way. We do not use our words to manipulate because we believe that words are powerful, that words created the world and that the word became flesh embodied in Jesus Christ and dwelt among us and spoke pure words who seven times said, I am, 
I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd and so forth in the gospel of John. These are the pure words of God. And we therefore take words seriously. We don't throw words around lightly. We don't label people with words lightly. We understand that the language we speak before God, before each other, and before the world that's watching is, is, is in the cadence and in the vernacular and in the accent of the Psalms. And so, David sees the lies and deception around him. Verse 5 now, he finds his deliverance and truth. Deception and lies becomes deliverance in truth in verse 5. Because, this is now, and by the way, in my translation, we have quotes here. This is God speaking now. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, so the weak are being trampled on, in other words, I will now arise. I am getting up to do something about it. That's what that's saying, says the Lord. I will place him, the weak, the trampled, in the safety for which he longs. God's going to move He's going to rescue. He's going to deliver. He's going to save. I will now arise, it says. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Friends, there's no other savior than the I who's speaking here. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. We have no other one to hope in, to cry out to, than the Lord. And now verse 6, in the midst of these deceptions, these lies, this duplicity, we have this. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Now, you may know, that with metals, you can put them, you can heat them down to a liquid in the fire and any impurities, things that aren't silver, in other words, you put the silver in the fire and anything that's not silver will rise up in to the surface of the liquid and you can just take that off. That's how you purify gold, silver, and other precious metals. Um, so here it's like that. God's words are purified. There's no duplicity. There's no deception. There's no lies. It's all purified. God speaks absolute truth. And when he speaks, reality is birthed. When he speaks, the world comes into being. When he speaks, you are now husband and wife. The two become one. Things happen. Life is birthed when he speaks. And he doesn't take it back. And he doesn't say it. Gotta crack the code. He speaks it straight. Sometimes we have to learn how to understand it because we are, we come with bias to the Bible. So we have to learn how to understand it, but he speaks straight. And it's purified seven times. That's a lot of scraping off dross. That's like, just to be safe, let's take another scrape off. Just to be, like seven times, it doesn't get purer than that. Also, seven is an allusion to the seven days of creation, which for the Jews meant completion and perfection. It's God's work. His words are that pure. And then, of course, the Gospel of John, I already just said, I kind of said it too early, but John, Jesus says, I am, and he gives us himself. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Seven times he gives us who he is. Seven words. This is 
the trustworthy, the delivering word of God. So in a world where we're not sure about the sources and we're not sure about motives and we're not sure about brainwashing, we're not sure about, well, you lean this way or that way and you're just trying to convince us. And in a world full of opinion and people with megaphones trying to feel good about themselves, look, people, listen to me. In that kind of a world, we actually have words that exist that are spoken not from an insecure ego that wants attention, but from the creator of the cosmos himself. And we can go to those words, we can trust them, and we can stake our lives on them. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And then it closes with, You, O Lord, verse 7, will keep them. That's the weak whom he's coming to deliver. You will keep them. And the implication is keep them from what? From the lies all around. We need this prayer. Lord, keep us from the lies. And you will guard us from this generation forever. May the Lord keep us from the lies around us. May he guard us from the duplicity of this generation, of this culture May the church be those who are not swayed because they've staked their lives on the pure words of God. And then the reminder, don't be duped. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The end. It's like a nice little horrible ending. It's like the lullaby, like, ah, and they all go to sleep, but the evil one is all around. So here we get where the air is thick, it's hard to breathe, like, oh, there's confusion, we got to come up for air somewhere, we have clear skies in Psalms 11 and 12, right? It's all cleared. We have clarity. Clarity in the midst of conspiracy, clarity in the midst of duplicity, because prayer and praise will lead us to the core of God's truth that cannot move us. Now, Here's where I'm going to directly address how this fits in our society right now. And this is the part of the message that I'm not looking forward to. Um, if you guys will, you can, you can listen, because we're not going to study these passages, but I want to read them to you. I'm going to read to you from Titus, chapter 1. Titus? Is that a minor prophet? No, Titus is in the New Testament. Tiny, tiny little Titus. He's right. Um, if you see like the Thessalonians and the Timothys, Titus is at the back end of all the T's. So Titus chapter one, verse nine. And here's what's going on. Paul plants a church in um, uh, Crete and he leaves Titus to run it. And now he's writing a letter to Titus as support and encouragement. And they're talking about elders, leaders in the church to appoint. And so what happens in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, is this. He says this. He, the people you appoint around you, Titus, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, like we read in Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of God are pure, refined seven times. Then he continues. Here's the reason I need all that. 
For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. <laughs> How about that? He's just full on. That group of people, a lot of empty talkers, a lot of dece- the deceivers. And here, again, we're going back to language. Watch out for that party that doesn't use the words of prayer and praise. The circumcision party. You know what the circumcision party is? It wasn't something that you elect, right? Democracy wasn't a thing back then. That's not that kind of party. These were Jews, usually Jewish Christians, who believed that in order to be a full Christian, you had to be circumcised. If you weren't circumcised, you just had faith in Christ. That's it. Just faith in Christ. You weren't a complete Christian. You didn't have all the parts. Or, okay. It's awkward. You, um, you just didn't do all your part, I guess. You didn't have the right form and you didn't enter into the deeper things, the, the cult of Christianity, if you will. That's kind of the circumcision party. You weren't good enough. With just Christ, you had to go through this too. So in verse 11, he continues, They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, it's one of the locals on the island Crete, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's fantastic. And of course, Paul here is not slandering them. He said one of the Cretans said of themselves, right? So that's totally fine. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So don't dabble into this mythical stuff. The, the, we, I wish I knew what the Jewish myths were. Those would be totally interesting. But don't dabble into these, well, conceivably, or what if. Don't go there. Just stick with God's pure, tested word. Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. Here you have duplicity. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Cardio dissonance, I guess, if you will. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So, chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, Paul is very strong on this point. Titus, wake up to what is happening in your culture around you and say what's true. So I said this is the part of the Bible message that I'm not looking forward to because if it was up to me, I would love to continue to expound more of the text. I love the text. I love making the Bible come to life for people. But here's where we have to just simply say what is happening around us because it's been on my heart for two months And I said, I'm not going to do it because it could potentially be divisive. But then the passage came right in front of me. I said, Lord, why? Why did you make it? Why? And so God said, look, Brandon, it's now or never. So before I go forward, I need you to know 
I never aim to divide people ever. I love I love being in the center of things. So sometimes people think I'm too liberal. Sometimes people think I'm too conservative. Kind of what happens when you're in the middle because you're just not ha- pleasing anyone. Um, so I never aim to divide. I would rather, um, yeah, I'd rather not do this. But uh, oh, also, um, as I said, I made a promise to you guys as a pastor. I'm never going to tell you what to believe politically. But I will tell you, I didn't say this once, but I'm saying it now. I will tell you when there is danger in our society that we need to be aware of. So here's what I see. I see in a, in chapter 11, there's conspiracy. People are telling David what to do. And there's a lot of concern. And then in chapter 12, there's deception. There's lies. There's duplicity. And I see in our nation right now the QAnon conspiracy is potentially stealing the hearts of believers into a false gospel. Now, I would I would prefer not to say anything that deals with politics like this. The only reason I feel compelled by the Lord is because he he in the New Testament told pastors to speak and silence what needs to be spoken against and silenced. And this is threatening the gospel itself. The only reason I care about it. Now, someone asked, what is it? And a recent poll suggested 75% of people have not even heard of QAnon. Good. Let's keep it that way. But it is a growing movement. Some have called it a growing religion. And it is that it is quickly swallowing people up because it works in similar ways like a religion. I want you to consider this. Uh, by the way, what is QAnon, you asked? Uh, I, should, I should define this. It's this belief that Trump and military officials are working to stop a deep state pedophile ring with links, with links to Hollywood, media, and Democrats. So Trump and the military leaders behind the scenes are working to dismantle, to expose the deep state mostly made up of people doing this gross pedophile stuff, which includes drinking. There's actually young people here. Um, you can look it up. Uh, with, and it's all linked to Hollywood, the media, and Democrats. Now, I personally know several people who believe this. So this is not just some out there thing. This is in the church. Um, here, here's, th- consider how QAnon works, okay? This is what they got going on. Um, it started on the fringes of the internet and it's moving its way in. In fact, one person just got, a, a elected in a primary where? In Georgia, I think, who openly believes this conspiracy theory. Um, and it's like this. So you might see the symbol Q. That's their symbol. QAnon has a symbol, just like Christians have the cross. QAnon has a Q. It has a creed, a literal creed that people recite when they get together. It also has scripture. They call it Q drops. And Q, I'll talk about them in a minute, but Q drops these online and says, uh, just these mysterious sayings, they call Q drops. And people look at them and go, there's a prophecy about what's about to happen. And people will spend hours decoding these Q drops to figure out what it means. They're often, here's a scary, they're often quoted with scripture. Uh, Q has a mysterious 
wizard behind the curtain? His name is Q. That's why it's called QAnon. Clarence Q Patriot. That's the name he goes by online. He, uh, no one knows who he is. And he's like the wizard behind the curtain. This mysterious godlike figure giving us clues. One day we're going to pull the veil back and realize it was just a man with a keyboard. Or a high school girl. Who knows? Um, it has gatherings and believers. It has an eschatology, a salvation. And they talk about the great awakening. The great awakening's coming. These are all religious terms they use. It relies on faith. It has a savior and a messiah, Donald J. Trump. It has apostles. It has evangelists who share the news. You go on YouTube. Don't indoctrinate yourself. But if you go on YouTube, you will find QAnon apostles everywhere with millions of views per video. Uh, It has an evil Satan, the Democrats. It believes in a plan. It literally has church services in Indiana. There is a church where they will teach the Bible and interpret it according to Q drops. And um, it has phrases like, trust the plan. Trust the plan. Sounds like something they ripped from Christians. Trust in God's plan. Nothing can stop what is coming. And where we go one, we go all. It's kind of like a unity phrase. Those are some of their sayings. It's crazy. Um, It's not just a political thing. It's actually a spiritual worldview, as you can see. It's putting hope in a figure that's not Christ. It's looking for an eschatology that is not the second coming of Christ, but it's that... um, our elected leaders will expose this deep state conspiracy. It's um, it's what happens when the bottom falls out and we no longer have a center. The Wild West is at large and people are saying, I don't trust any of the major news medias anymore, so we are the news. And street journalism is dangerous because they don't have the disciplines of how to actually connect facts together and do critical thinking. And so there's a lot of like this crazy creative you watch something you're like, oh, that's convincing until you actually try to dig into it. You're like, how do you, how do you make that connection? There's no proof. Um, but see, the danger to me is that it's using Christian language. It's stealing the gospel by replacing saviors, the coming, the great awakening, the salvation, and it's putting pol- politics into it. And what happens when you have a society that loses institutions, especially God, You have politics become your God. We worship the donkey. We worship the elephant. And when these become religions, they become everything to people. And so you become vicious. You become hateful. You begin to have crusades against them. And now we're seeing a political thought is becoming a passionate belief about the reality of the world. And even many are saying it already has the markings of religion. As I've said in Indiana, there is a literal church, a Q Jesus religion. One last thing, and this is why I'm bringing it up with us so you're aware, because it's very attractive to Christians who believe that the end is near. Very attractive. Here's one source. This was written from a a Christian source. It says... um, QAnon builds on apocalyptic thinking, common in parts of evangelical Christianity. Q drops, remember those are those cryptic little messages that this anonymous person is putting out there, 
the prophecies, if you will, cue drops frequently include biblical passages and the style of study of scripture and cue texts employed. So in other words, you, you study these cue texts like you study scripture. Okay. Um, and there are a lot of Christians coming out of QAnon now that are confessing that this has replaced their reading of the Bible. This has replaced their hope in Christ. And they're, they're waking up and saying, I've, I got duped by a false doctrine. Um, it continues and says, uh, this is, this is how people read Q texts, the same way they read prophecies in scripture. They read it with the careful search for hidden prophetic meaning and correspondence to historical and current events. Very much like the left behind and the late great planet Earth, uh, views of the end times. I don't want us, I don't want us to think, oh my goodness, I found this post online and it's matching up with what I think is going to happen in Revelation and now I'm totally stoked and then you're going to be totally lured because it's addicting, it's exciting to have someone showing you what's really going on out there and oh, look at this piece, I never connected with that and oh my gosh, I'm in the know, everybody else is ignorant, I'm one of the awakened. You see the trap, that's how cults work. And that's what will pull in Christians, unless they're aware, can be susceptible unless, like David in Psalm 11, 1, has already declared, in God I have put my refuge. How dare you say to me, look, QAnon's got all these answers. Flee to this or anything else out there. This just happens to be the example that fits our text tonight. I would rather then so enough of that. Enough. If you need to know more, go ahead and research. I, I'll have um, the article. I have, have a lot of articles I can send you guys um, that are helpful. Um, but I want to get back to Christ and the gospel. So now you know that's there. Friends, we need not QAnon. We need Christ alone. Christ alone. And it's not Christ, but you have to know how he's working through this conspiracy to bring everything to be. No, I don't actually. I don't have to know that. Do you know you're okay with Christ alone? And if you didn't know anything about, let's just throw QAnon out for a moment. Let's just throw eschatology out there. If you didn't know anything except Christ is coming back, did you know that you're okay? We don't have to throw around and bash names and people and say, they're bringing this one world order we're afraid of. Or they're going to bring the mark of the beast to us. That's not praise. That is bashing human beings and dehumanizing people. That should never come from Christians. Where was I? Christ alone. We need Christ alone. And I want to close by reading to you guys a few passages where we can be encouraged and lifted out of here by saying, it's Christ alone. It's Christ alone. It's not the circumcision party or the QAnon party or the Democratic party or the Republican party or the independent party or the green party. I'm sure that will happen one day. There is Christ alone, that party. Well, no, it's not a party, but Christ alone. Um, Christ, let's start with this. Q, this godlike mysterious figure that nobody knows or has seen, He's anonymous. That's why it's called QAnon. Christ is not anonymous. Friends, Christ is not anonymous. We know Christ. And the Bible has plenty to say about Christ not being anonymous. 
Here we go. Ready? This I this like made me so stoked when I put these verses together. Second Corinthians four four. Christ is the image of God. Is God anonymous? Nope. Christ is the image. And Christ came to us, right? Colossians 1.5. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Like, well, we kind of know God, kind of, because Christ is kind of like a slanting ray of light from God. Nope. Exact imprint of his nature in his image. So we read there. Romans 16. This is the end of Romans. Romans 16, 25, 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, Paul says, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. There's no mystery anymore about the gospel and about Christ. He's been made known through this gospel and to the nations. He is known. He's clear. And it says, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. Acts 26, 26, Paul on trial before Herod talks to Herod. And he says to Herod, you, Herod, the king knows about these things. He was talking about Jesus crucified and raised. You, Herod, know about these things. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, Christ didn't come on the fringes of the internet and whispered through cryptic texts. Hey, I'm coming with deliverance. He was on the earth. He was known. He was visibly and publicly crucified and raised. And publicly raised before people. 1 Corinthians 15.5 says, He appeared to Peter then to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, so go ask him about the resurrection, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared as to one untimely born, also to me, Paul, he's saying. Go check out, he's appeared, he's a publicly resurrected king, and he's appeared to all these people. 1 Timothy 3.16 Christ was manifested in the flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And John, 1 John 1, 1 and 2. That which was in the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. Is Christ anonymous? I hope that was a, a, a an onslaught of passages that said, no, he is the image of God and he came among us and he was manifest. We touched him. We saw him. He is far from anonymous. He is known and he made himself known. The gospel is not Jesus plus like Disney plus. You know, there's Disney, but then you got to be a subscriber to Disney plus. It's not Christ and then subscribe for Christ plus. Friends, it's Christ alone. 
It is Christ alone. And I can't put it more forcefully than Paul did in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, 6. Paul, writing to his first, very first churches he planted, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. That's the literal Greek, by the way. As we have said before now, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. Whew, those are choice words. He says it again as strongly as he can. And then last of all, friends, I want to I want to close in this wonderful passage in Ephesians 4. Because it's not Q, but it's the cross. The cross is our one hope. The cross is our one hope. The cross is our one hope. And Ephesians chapter 4 makes it so clear. 4 verse 4. There's one body, us and beyond, of course. There's one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The one hope. Is that hope a politician and military leaders exposing evil in our midst? If that's if that's really going on and they expose that, cool, I'm not going to complain. That's going to be great. But that's not my hope. That is not my hope. We have one hope, and then Paul tells us what that hope is. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have one hope, one baptism, one faith, one. It's We don't need to add. We don't need more. All we need to go back to the psalm is the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Jesus, we need to replace our confidence that there is